Friends, if you brought a Bible, uh, please open it to the book of Ephesians. The very last chapter, chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. I wonder before I read from the Lord's word here how many of you love a good action-adventure movie. Okay, there was some bashfulness. Put your hands up. How many of you love a good action-adventure movie? Yeah. Yeah, I recognize movies are one of those topics that can get a little dicey from the pulpit, so I'm going to be real careful. Uh, But I certainly love action-adventure movies, and one of the things that I enjoy the most, maybe you're like me, in this genre is trying to figure out who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. Now, some it's really clear. You know, I was, I was thinking back to, to childhood watching Disney films, right? So, so I think back then the process was pretty easy. Step one, listen for ominous music, you know? Um, step two, listen for the scary voice. Right? Wherever those two things go together, you know you've got the bad guy. I, uh, my wife, Elise, and I were, were laughing this week, week before, I can't remember, um, that our, our one-year-old, he's almost two, but he's, he's watching cartoons, and lo and behold, the music gets ominous, the voice gets scary, and, and he doesn't, I mean, he's learning about his world, and he doesn't know everything that's going on, but we're watching him, and all of a sudden, this scowl just creeps across his face. And, and we laughed, realizing he instinctively senses this is the bad guy. It's the bad guy. You know, we, we grow a little bit older, and the movies we watch get more complicated. Uh, some of my favorite action-adventure movies today are ones where it's not altogether clear who the good guy is, who the bad guy is. But, but whether or not the two sides are obvious, folks, I don't think it changes the fact that there's something deep within all of us that wants the good guys to win and the bad guys to lose. That's, that's deep within us. The conflict that we, that we watch, even in our entertainment, between, between good and evil, it speaks to something that's hardwired in our humanity. There's this sense, there's an intuition, a a consciousness, if you would, of a struggle that's deeper than the physical world. And I'd argue that it's the part of us that knows, whether or not we're a Christian, that we're caught up in something greater than ourselves. And that behind all that we see is a cosmic struggle that we've been talking about for several weeks now, between good and evil. We, we know that. We sense that. We, we perceive it in the movies we watch and in the childhood stories that we treasure. And quite frankly, we shouldn't be surprised because of what Paul says in Romans 1. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to, to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without 
excuse. Folks, to be human is to be endowed by our creator God with an inescapable awareness of his eternal existence and infinite worth. All that he is and loves is good, and all that he isn't and hates is evil. And from the dawn of creation, all of human history has played out in the midst of this spiritual battlefield between good and evil, between the power of God and the power of Satan. The God who created us in his image is fighting for our salvation. And the evil one who hates God's image bearers is fighting for our destruction, which means if you are following Jesus, if you're part of his blood-bought people, that you're not wrestling, Ephesians 6, against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul says that in Ephesians 6. And for the last couple weeks, what I anticipated would be one message has turned into three. (laughs) Because there's so much in this chapter, especially verses 10 to 20, about spiritual warfare, this cosmic battle that, that we're all aware of on some level between good and evil. And this morning I want to conclude this study by focusing on verses 17 to 20. But I'm going to start reading in verse 13, just to give us context. So look at Ephesians 6. Pick up in verse 13. Hear the word of God. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. The words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Lord, I pray right now that you would answer that prayer for me and that you would help me as I speak to proclaim your word boldly and you would help all of us, including me, to listen and obey. Amen. Amen. Friends, the claim of God's word to us this morning, I will argue, is both sobering and comforting. You've heard this from me before, okay? I've heard it before, but it's true today. Those who stand in the strength that God supplies will triumph over every evil power. Those who stand in the strength that God supplies will triumph over every evil power. We must not ignore the battle. We must not run from the battle. We must stand and fight. And all the commands that God gives us here are means by which we can do that. So Paul uses this analogy of of physical armor to teach us spiritual truths about the means God's given us to, verse 10, remain strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And there are seven of them in this passage. 
is why it's ended up taking so long to work through it. You should be grateful this morning. I don't have a seven-point message. But we looked at the first four two weeks ago, okay? And this morning, we're going to go look at the last three. The last three. So first, first means, consider this morning that God gives us to fight in this cosmic battle, is to take up the helmet of salvation. Take up the helmet of salvation. In the cosmic battle between good and evil, there is one thing we need, church, more than anything else. We need salvation. We need salvation. And the reason for that is because we're not spectators in this battle. Okay, some of us are going to enjoy spectating this afternoon. As an Eagles fan, I'll be spectating tomorrow night. But when it comes to this cosmic battle between good and evil, none of us are spectators. Every one of us is a participant because Scripture doesn't locate the problem of evil merely as something that's around us. Scripture locates the problem of evil as something that's inside of us. That's humbling. Psalm 14, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who who seek after God. Answer, they've all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Church, every one of us is corrupted by sin. Okay, not one person in this room is inherently good. We are inherently wicked. Left unchecked, left to ourselves, we trend toward what is wrong. We don't trend toward what is right. And and even our best deeds fall woefully short of the glory of God, which means we deserve his judgment. So we need salvation. We need salvation from the evil around us. We need salvation from the evil within us. And we need salvation from the wrath of God that we deserve as a result. So how does God respond to that? Isaiah 59. The Lord saw it. Everything I just described. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was not justice. He saw that there was no man and and wondered that there was no one to intercede to make this right. Then, oh church, look at this. Then, what? His own arm brought him salvation. His own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Who's wearing the armor? God is, right? According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. Result, they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives and a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. That's what God does in response to our need for salvation from the evil around us, the evil within us, and the wrath of God that we deserve as a result. His own arm brings salvation. And this this helmet of salvation that Paul's referring to here in verse 17, it's a helmet that God designed in eternity past, 
that he forged for himself through the person and work of Christ and that he now holds out as a gift for all who are willing to receive it. Okay, Jesus lived your life, friend. He obeyed all the commands you have failed to obey. Jesus died your death. He bore in his body the judgment of God on your sin, and, and Jesus rose from the grave, proving that the most fearsome weapons of, of Satan and all the powers of evil, the power of sin, the power of death, were no match for the power of God. That's what his resurrection proved. But he's not done, right? Then he ascends into heaven from where he pours out his Holy Spirit on his people so that you and I now have power in this battle to obey God's commands in a way we never desired to and never could before. Okay, that's what happens when God says, my own arms are going to bring me some salvation. That's what happens. In Christ, and Christ alone, God holds out to you a helmet of salvation. So take it up. Take it up. You won't survive without it. You'll be destroyed by the evil around you. You'll be judged for the evil within you. So stop trying to save yourself. And look to Jesus to save you. In the salvation of God, there's comfort. In the salvation of God, there's, there's healing. In the salvation of God, there's, there's deliverance and, and confidence and security and hope and justice and peace and, and life and joy. You only get those things in the salvation of God. And, and note well here, Paul's audience, he, he's not writing, this is very important, he's not writing primarily to non-Christians. He's writing to Christians. He's telling Christians in the church in Ephesus, take up the helmet of salvation. Now, hold on. I, I thought once I, like, signed the card and walked down the aisle, like I got it. And it was sort of vacuum sealed on me for life. Well, then, if that's the case, why would Paul say to Christians, take it up? And not just once, but, but take it up and take it up again and take it up again. Well, well, there's a lesson here for us. There's a warning here for us, okay? And here's the warning. Taking up the helmet of salvation isn't something that we do once and then move on to bigger and better things. All right? It's something we must do over and over and over again. Why do I say that? Why do I say that? Well, because on Monday, it's the gospel and God's steadfast love in Jesus that will deliver you from the fear of man. On Tuesday, it's the gospel and God's perfect justice in Jesus that will deliver you from the poison of bitterness. And because on Wednesday, it's the gospel and God's total forgiveness in Jesus that will deliver you from guilt and condemnation. I could keep going. All right, what's the point? Only those who preach the promises of the gospel to themselves day after day, who keep meditating on all the blessings that are ours because of Christ, only those people can say this with King David, the Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord, not me, not my bank account, not my family or friends, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. We were singing about that. Of whom shall I be afraid? Church, take up the helmet of salvation. For those who stand in the strength that God supplies will triumph over every evil power. That's point one. Point two, take up 
the sword of the Spirit. Take up the helmet of salvation. Take up the sword of the Spirit. I don't think I have to work, hopefully, very hard, to convince you that we live in a culture that is increasingly less friendly and less accepting of Christian beliefs and Christian worldview with every passing day. Okay, we just need to be straight up about that. You know, if you're a college student and, and in your ethics class, you argue this week that human beings do not have a right, an absolute right, to freedom of sexual expression. There's a decent chance you're going to be laughed out of the classroom, or if you're not, you're going to be labeled as a fundamentalist bigot. Okay? You know, we, we also live in a world <laughs> where, where if you're working for a large company, there's a decent chance that, that your HR department has issued very clear guidelines designed to prevent any and all conversation about spiritual matters that could potentially create division or conflict or disagreement in the workplace. We want safe spaces. We want trigger warnings. And since that's the world that we live in, church, if you're a Christian, you need to remember three things. I really want to I want to shepherd you with these because Paul's going to lead us in this as we look at the sword of the Spirit. First, we need to remember that the conditions in the first century when the church, when Christianity was just growing by leaps and bounds, were not that different than what we have today. Okay? Not that different. This isn't the first time that God's people have tried to be Christians in this sort of society. Right? That's the first thing we've got to remember. Second, we need to remember, as Kevin read earlier from Philippians 2, that there is a day coming. This is where all human history is headed. There's a day coming when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay? That's, that's where we're going. So, point one, don't be surprised. This isn't a new phenomenon. Point two, remember the end. Okay? This, this isn't downward and downward to despair. This is onward and onward until King Jesus is glorified. All right, don't be surprised. Remember the end. And then third thing we need to remember, we need to remember that our king has given us a sword. I was tempted to, to get some big broadsword from the drama closet and take it up here, but I thought, well, maybe I'll whack something. Um, but he's given us a sword. And before we look at what the sword is, I, I want us, church, to just simply know and observe that we're holding a sword. And that should tell you something about the mission that God has given you. We haven't looked at what the sword is. All we know is that he's given us a sword. That alone says something loud, okay? Here's what it says. It says that God didn't create you and save you so you could sit tight, circle the wagons, watch Fox News, and bemoan the fact that the world is going to hell in a handbasket. All right? If I offended some of you, so be it. Okay? Nothing against Fox News. But I hear that thinking. Headphones in, isolate, circle the wagons. I hear that. That's not why God created you, my friend. 
That's not why God saved us. He created us. He saved us. He's empowered us to fight. Okay? To bear witness to the glory of his kingdom. Now, now remember, remember what I said a couple weeks ago. Jesus Christ is the victor. Christ is the victor, which means we don't build his kingdom. Listen carefully. We don't expand his kingdom, and we don't in some way through our effort bring it to pass. We're not that powerful. <laughs> okay? That's what God does. That's his work alone. You, you won't find anywhere in Scripture God's people being told to do any of those things in relation to the kingdom of God. What you will find all throughout Scripture is God telling us to proclaim his kingdom, to testify to his glory, and to share with everyone who will listen how much Jesus has done for us. Okay, I'll say it this way. If you're in Christ, you're not a survivor in this world. You are a conqueror. And some of us need to wake up to that. You're not a survivor. King Jesus did not shed his blood on the cross so that you could survive from now till glory. King Jesus shed his blood on the cross so that you could be more than a conqueror through him who loved you. Hear that, church. And King Jesus, your captain, has solemnly charged you, me, us, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all his commands. Translation, fighting. And to do that, he's given us a sword. So what's the sword? What's the sword? Look at Ephesians 6, 17. The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The word of God. Notice he didn't say the Republican Party. The word of God. Friends, there's a lot of good things that we can do as a church. I am grateful for so many of the good things that we're able to do as a church. There's a lot of good things that you can do as an individual Christian, but there is one thing that's absolutely necessary that we have to do if we're going to do what we've been created to do and saved to do. We have to relentlessly and courageously proclaim the word of God and the power of the Spirit to anyone who will listen. Okay, that's the fight. That's the mission. That's the point of holding a sword. 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are ambassadors for Christ. You don't get to decide if you want to be. We are God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Well, how is God doing that? How, how is God making that appeal to the world around you? Well, I'm here to tell you today that he's doing it through your mouth. <laughs> through your mouth. Or as Paul says in, in Romans 10, how, just great questions from Paul here, how will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. If you have been saved through the power of the gospel, then you are part of the army of God. The army of God. And your goal, your mission, 
is to relentlessly and courageously proclaim the word of God and the power of the Spirit to everyone who will listen. Okay? And when you do that, friend, remember this. Those words that in your ears sound so feeble and awkward and difficult and what about the problem of evil? Hey, um, um, can I get back to you? Um, you, you? All the fearful thoughts that flow through our mind when we think of talking with someone outside these walls about Jesus. Tracking? That's what I'm talking about. Okay? When we, in that moment, open our mouth and speak of Jesus, know this. You are speaking the word of God. And I remind you this morning, that when you speak the words of God, you are not speaking idle words. You are speaking the words of a God who says, let there be light. And there's light. You're, you're speaking the words of a God who says to a storm, shut up. And it's still. You're speaking the words of a God who walked to the opening of a tomb and said to a man who'd been dead for three days, Lazarus, come out. And he walks out. You're not speaking idle words, friend. When you take God's words and you open your mouth and you share them, you're speaking powerful words. And it's not because you feel powerful. You aren't. And guess what? The preacher behind this pulpit doesn't either. But they are because they're his. Okay? It's our job to speak. And the one thing Satan wants to do, if he can't separate you from Christ and destroy your soul as a result, the one thing next to that he'll settle for is getting you to be quiet. In the face of this cultural pressure to cause you, for various reasons, to shut your mouth, whether through the fear of man or the fear of losing your job, because Satan isn't threatened by a sword that's in its sheath. He's just not. I mean, nor would any soldier be of a soldier who says, hey, I've got a gun on my backpack. Okay, well, you're arrested. Because you didn't pull it out. <laughs> you know, it's, he, he's not afraid if the sword stays in its sheath. So, so we have to take up the sword of the Spirit and proclaim the word of God and the power of the Spirit to all who will listen at the height of which stands the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, that's the second thing we do. We put on the helmet of salvation, remind ourselves day after day of all that's ours in Jesus, the promises that are ours, salvation that's ours, then we take up the sword of the Spirit and we speak of it to others. Here's the third. Here's the third. Third means by which those who stand in the strength of God's supplies will triumph over every evil power. Last point. Persist in prayer. Persist in prayer. Okay, take up the helmet of salvation. Take up the sword of the spirit and persist in prayer. I love how one commentator, Harold Honer, um, commenting on verses 18 to 20, I, I wrote this down because I was just gripped by it. He said, listen, nuclear wars cannot be won with rifles. Likewise, satanic wars cannot be won by human energy. You need to hear that. 
for you to hear that. And, and the grammar of verse 18 indicates that, that Paul isn't leaving the whole concept of spiritual armor on the shelf and now sort of getting on to bigger and better things like prayer. He's not, okay? The grammar of this whole passage, this really long sentence, shows us that prayer is the seventh and arguably one of the most important spiritual weapons that God has entrusted to the church and to you as a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ. Prayer is the means by which we remain, verse 1, strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. There can be, let's say it this way, there cannot be any standing firm apart from persistent prayer. This is not going to happen. So, so let's follow Paul's lead on this last point as he answers a couple questions about prayer. Okay? To keep this very simple. A couple questions. When do we pray? How do we pray? And for whom do we pray? All right? So first, when do we pray? Look at verse 18. When do we pray? Praying what? At all times all times. Very, very similar to, to Paul's words to the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. Pray without ceasing. Only here, Paul gives us a little more detail on why. Because in the context, we, we know something. We know something about why continual prayer is necessary. So look at, look at the middle of verse 18. To that end, keep alert. Praying at all times. Why, Paul? To that end, keep alert. What's he pointing to? The fact, as I said earlier, that our entire life on earth, whether or not you are a follower of Christ this morning, is spent in a spiritual war zone. Which means that there's not a minute of your existence here where you don't need to be alert to the attacks of the evil one. You don't get to sit the bench. You don't get to call time out. You're in a war. You, you don't get to walk up to the enemy and say, I, I need a bathroom break. <laughs> no, no, you're, you're in a war zone. You're in a battle. And, and Satan's efforts to distract and draw us away from faith in God will certainly vary in their intensity. Okay, I'm aware of that. But, but there's a real sense in which our entire life on earth plays out in what Paul referred to back in verse 13, the evil day. And prayer, which if you're not familiar with that or think, that just sounds like another Christian word from a guy on the stage. Prayer, which is simply conversation with God. Okay, if you're looking for a good definition, what's prayer? Talking with God. Conversation with God, <laughs> all right? Prayer is the primary means by which we remain spiritually alert on the battlefield of life. You know, it's, it's, like, it's like the communications officer. Back to action-adventure movies, here we go. Communications officer who, who radios headquarters for a daily briefing on the enemy's movements on the battlefront. So what do I mean by that? Well, if you're not spending time waiting on God and listening to what he has to say to you, then you are going to be absolutely ignorant of the temptations that you're going to face, of the attacks spiritually that may be coming your way, you won't perceive where you're vulnerable and you're a sitting duck, okay? 
And Paul knows that Paul knows that there's not a single day in our life or the, a day in the life of, of anyone around us where we don't need God to intervene in the battle. <laughs> okay? So to run with this analogy, imagine a field commander who says, wakes up one morning, you know, the coffee wasn't so good, and he just says, you know what? I am done radioing HQ for support. I don't want any more airstrikes. I don't want any more provisions. All I want to do is try to slog this thing out with what meager resources we have and see how it goes. Sorry, sir, um, but I'm not following you because that sounds like a death march. That guy would be crazy. He'd be crazy. And that's precisely what we do, friends, when we fail to pray at all times. When do we pray? At all times. When we fail to do that and ask for God to intervene, the resources of heaven are at your disposal. Why would we not day after day and moment after moment in every situation call out to God and say, Jesus, help. Help. It's not complicated. Jesus, help me right now. When do we pray? All times. All right? How do we pray? How do we pray? Well, here Paul gives us a little more detail. Okay, look at verse 18. We pray. How do we pray? We pray in the Spirit. We pray in the Spirit. Right? When you become a Christian, the Spirit of God literally takes up residence inside of you. It's called being a temple of the living God. All right? And one of the Holy Spirit's chief roles, the reason he's there, is not to weird you out and create division among different Christian denominations. One of his chief roles is to help you to pray, all right? Romans 8, likewise, the Spirit helps us. Oh, I need this church. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. Hear that, with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts, yours included, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Oh my, <laughs> there is comfort here. There's comfort because the Holy Spirit is our helper. He's your helper. And it's through conscious active dependence on the help of the Holy Spirit that we find strength to pray. Because take it from this pastor, praying is ridiculously hard work. Have you, have you ever noticed how unbelievably hard it is to try to quiet your mind and focus on listening to God and talking with God for more than five minutes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, please keep nodding. Yep. I, I can't tell you how many times, even this morning, you know, I'm getting ready to preach. A couple hundred people are going to listen. You know, and it's like my mind's like, I wonder how Carson Wentz is going to do. Well, I think, where did that come from, Williams? <laughs> you know, it just takes so much work. We need help. We need help. We need to pray in the Spirit, leaning on Him for help and, and grateful that He prays on our behalf even when we don't have a clue what to say to God. You know, I, I mentioned earlier the times when, when I'll find that, that I'm either just so broken or so distracted or so sad or so whatever that I feel like all I can say, I'm sitting there, I've got however much time I'm supposed to pray, all I feel like I can say is, Lord, please help. I don't even know what to say. Um, 
you know that's a prayer your father delights to answer? Delights to answer that. And all the things that you arguably could or should be praying for besides God help, that you don't have the guts or strength to pray, guess what? The Holy Spirit has them covered. Amazing. God himself is praying to God for you. That's what it means. That's what it means. That, that, that's the confidence we have when we are leaning, depending on the Spirit, praying when? All times. How do we pray? We pray in the Spirit, depending on Him, okay? Second, second way we pray. How do we pray? We pray in the Spirit. We pray with all perseverance. Look back at verse 18. That and keep alert with all perseverance. Paul is reminding us here that there are some things God only provides to those who start praying and don't stop praying until God answers. I'd say it that strongly. Okay, one of, one of the hardest things to do is to persevere in bringing requests to God over a long period of time. And for lack of time, I won't get into all the details. I'd simply say if this is hard for you, um, and all sorts of struggles are rising to your heart right now, I would love to be able to talk with you after this meeting. <laughs> but I am convicted, as I think, in response to Paul's exhortation to pray with all perseverance, how often I pray once or twice, think I've done my job, and then get all angry at God when he doesn't answer within seven days. That's convicting. That's not praying with all perseverance, persistent prayer. Please hear this, church. Persistent prayer keeps us dependent and it keeps us humble. It's an expression of trust in God's wisdom and power and goodness. It, it's like a child who knows that their dad is able to bless them, eager to bless them, and knows what is best for them. That's what, that's what our prayer should be like to our Heavenly Father if you're a follower of Christ. You know, so the next time, parents, that you, you see a three or four or five-year-old, maybe it's not even your kid, asking an adult for something five times, six times, seven times, it's over and over and over and over and over again. Don't flip out. <laughs> Recognize that that even angry little person is teaching you something about how to pray, how to persist how to not give up, learn from them. The Lord moves in response to persistent prayer. How do we pray? In the Spirit. How do we pray? With all perseverance. How do we pray, lastly, with all prayer and supplication? In the Spirit, with all perseverance, in all prayer and supplication. What, what's Paul saying here? Well, he's exhorting us not to neglect any form of prayer. There are different forms of prayer, right? So just very quickly to illustrate this, prayers of adoration keep us satisfied in the beauty of God and help us resist the temptation to worship the pleasures and possessions of this world. Okay, prayers of confession keep us humble before the face of God and help us resist the temptation to think that we don't need him or that we're better than the people around us. Okay, prayers of thanksgiving, what do they do? That form of prayer, thankful prayers. Well, they keep us grateful and content and, and resist the temptation to to jealousy. And prayers of supplication keep us dependent on the power of God. 
And if you're praying prayers of supplication, they remind you and me that we better not try to do God's work in our way instead of doing God's work in God's way. Say prayers of adoration. This spells acts, by the way. Prayers of confession, (laughs) prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of supplication. All prayer and supplication, okay? How do we pray? We pray in the spirit, we pray with persistence, and we pray comprehensively. All prayers and supplication. That's how we pray, okay? Then the last question, when all times? How? We just looked at that. Lastly, for whom? Who do we pray for? Back at verse 18, we'll end with this. Who are we to make supplication for? What does Paul say? To that and keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. All the saints. Remember here who Paul is writing to. He's writing to a local church in Ephesus. He told us in Ephesians 1 that everything he had to say in here was to the saints who are in Ephesus. Okay, saints isn't a new word. It simply means holy ones. Those are the people of God. So when Paul refers to saints here, he's telling us that that while there's certainly a sense in which we are called and responsible to pray for all Christians in some measure, all over the world, wouldn't argue against that, that you and I as members of a local church have primary responsibility to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are here. Okay, in the battle, God assigns certain soldiers certain responsibilities. If every soldier is trying to do every other soldier's job, what's that equal? Chaos. <laughs> so what does Paul admonish the Ephesians to do here? To pray for all the saints. Well, who are the saints in this context? The brothers and sisters in Christ in Ephesus. We need to be careful, church, that our prayers, my prayers, don't become self-centered. Self-centered. We're where our conversation with God is just like this merry-go-round, just always revolving around my needs and my worries and my troubles. Now, now don't hear what I'm not saying. Read the book of Psalms. It's a school in how to pray for your needs and troubles, okay? We need to bring those things to God. But our prayers shouldn't revolve ultimately around ourselves. They should revolve around this abiding passion and hunger for Jesus Christ to be glorified and magnified in all things, which includes in your church and in the lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ. So I want to admonish you, if if you find that you don't really know how to pray for the people who are sitting around you right now, well, then you've got some work to do. And that means that when we gather as a church, our conversation should be full of good questions where we, we ask things like, What's hard right now? How do you need prayer? You know, I, I'm just so thankful for how many of you over the last year, which has been very hard for me in different ways, have faithfully come to me and just said, Matthew, how can we pray for you? And yet I'm humbled when I look back on some of my responses and I realize, you know, a lot of times what I requested was, was ultimately more about my comfort than God's mission. Not pitting these things against each other, but I'm provoked that Paul doesn't say, and pray also for me, that I would be released from prison. What's he say? He says, Pray also for me that I might declare the mystery of the gospel boldly, as I better be speaking it. Is it wrong to pray that you'd get out of prison? Nope. Nope. God seems to be quite happy to do that for the Apostle Peter. 
and uh, created a ruckus in Herod's army as a result. <laughs> but the priority is clear. Our prayers shouldn't be self-centered. They should be God-centered. And at the heart of God's mission is a desire that every man and every woman, as we speak the gospel, would come to know him. We ought to be asking each other faithfully, diligently, following Paul here, for boldness to speak the gospel, to take up that sword. Church, in conclusion, I'll say again what I've said so many times before. Those who stand in the strength God supplies will triumph over every evil power. That's good news. And you're going to do that. And you can do that as you take up these means that we've looked at. This morning we saw three of them. Helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, and persistent prayer. So King's Way, take up the whole armor of God. Take it up. Take it up today. Take it up tomorrow that you might be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Let's pray. Lord, these last couple weeks have been sobering for me as I in study and preparation have been confronted by the fact that I'm in a war. And that so often I, I live and think like, like I'm on a playground. And that all there is is the stuff in my house and the dollars in my bank account and the people I can see and talk to. Father, thank you for warning us awakening us the last couple weeks that that there's a bigger battle going down. Thank you for warning us and awakening us that that every moment of life is in that battle. And that you have mercifully and faithfully in Christ given us all we need to stand in the victory that you have won for us, Jesus. So Lord, I, I, I pray now as I have prayed so many times for this church I love. I pray you would protect us. Lord, I don't know half of the spiritual attacks that my brothers and sisters have experienced this week or will this next week. You do. That's why I'm praying. That's why we're radioing headquarters right now. And we ask for your help. We ask for your mercy. We pray that there would be no neglected spiritual armor in this congregation. And I ask more than anything this week that that you would help us to take our sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, out and use it. And speak. I pray what Paul requested. Lord Jesus, grant us boldness. You are our captain. We are your soldiers. And we want to follow you till you get us home. Grant us boldness. For your glory in Jesus' name.